We live in very contentious times. America is very divided politically and socially and culturally, and we really see and hear rhetoric that um, seems to increase in elevation or in anger. And there's really a lot of lines drawn in the sand, kind of from, from every direction. Yet, we as followers of Jesus are called to be known for our love for one another and for our enemies. In fact, Jesus calls the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. So, it's a little jarring today when we hear the gospel reading, which talks about contentious language and division and Jesus describing division as what he's bringing to the earth. He's not bringing peace, he's bringing division. Friend against friend, father and mother against children, siblings against each other. And um, at face value, one could say that this verse does not seem like the Jesus that we know. Jesus is gentle and compassionate. He is welcoming and inclusive. He engages with and he sees people in a way that is beautifully transformative. So why would Jesus talk like this? Why would he talk about division? And I'm sure we've all heard stories from friends or family or maybe even know someone who for one reason or another was at odds with their parents and they were thrown out or even disowned. I know I have some friends that that was a part of their story. But what about having strong convictions? What about something that leads to friction between people? For whatever reason, this conviction held by one person or respectively two different people causes some kind of crack up. And this is more in the spirit of what Jesus is saying. And to be really clear, Jesus' ministry was full of redemptive and beautiful and compassionate moments that were full of healing and reconciliation and there was absolution and forgiving of sins and more. But I find that there is a side to Jesus' ministry which kind of gets forgotten and kind of gets pushed to the side. And this was this, this idea that Jesus was actually a very controversial and scandalizing presence in his context and still very much today. He made claims to, to divinity He forgave sins, which was something that only God could do. That act alone is actually ultimately what gets him crucified. He makes a claim to divinity and the Sanhedrin, you know, calls out blasphemy and they crucify him. He challenged and admonished and scolded the religious leaders of his day, who by all accounts were the ones that were seen as perfect, as the paragons of society. He challenged the wealthy to give up their wealth, which was often seen as a sign of God's favor in that culture to that person. He even said it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. He made disciples out of dropouts and losers. He associated with and ate with sinners and tax collectors, prostitutes, and and the undesirables of society. And we really don't have a paradigm in our culture for how extreme that was, but that was a huge deal. I'm not going to try to come up with one for our... um, our culture, I might, might end up being the last uh, sermon I ever give. But, um, but you know, the, it, it really scandalized people. It really put people off. So what Jesus is getting at is really the controversial nature of his ministry and his message. The first will be last. The weak will be strong. 
This idea is often called the upside-down kingdom in theology, and it gets talked about a lot, because everything is shaken up. Everything from the foundations to the top is flipped. And it would have created division amongst family and friends, for sure. Just imagine that you are a first-century Jewish-Palestinian person. Your life has been focused on God's Torah, which has a set of boundaries about what is okay to do and what is not okay to do. God is always first and foremost in your mind, in your heart, in your life. And you are beholden to the religious leaders of your day and the authority. Maybe it was the Pharisees or the Sadducees. You keep the kosher law, which are a set of guidelines, and rules for how to stay and maintain a holy and clean and righteous life. And then there comes this guy named Jesus. And like many rabbis of his day, he travels and he teaches people. And that was actually very common. That was not a crazy idea. Every rabbi did that. They did a kind of a speaking tour circuit with their disciples. And they would debate theology with other rabbis and they would answer questions. But he's so different because this Jesus has you enraptured by what he's proclaiming, by what he's doing. He speaks of good news for the poor who are seen as probably not under God's favor. He speaks against the oppressive power of the religious leaders, some of whom are corrupt and in league with the Romans who occupy your land. He then even begins to perform miracles. He heals the lame so they can walk. He casts demons out of people and frees them from torment. He forgives sin. Again, something only God can do. And you are just, in, you're just captured by this character. He also calls out on people to repent and acknowledge that the kingdom of God is here and to follow him. And he says that he will give you spiritual life and spiritual water that will leave you no longer thirsty. He says that his burden is light and his yoke is easy. But he also says that following him will be hard and that the world will hate you for following him. And you realize in that moment that this man is the Messiah. The one that was foretold by the prophets that you read growing up. The one who would free Israel's people from their sins and their burdens. You're overcome with emotion and you bow before him. You call him Lord. You've become a follower of Jesus. And so you run home through the streets of your village, tears streaming down your face as you know you've just met the only one who can free you from your sins and your burdens. The only one who is worthy to be praised and followed. And you get home and you have joy in your heart and you begin to tell your family about this amazing person that you saw, Jesus of Nazareth, how he healed people of sickness. He even forgave people of their sins, but he's calling on people to live a life of holiness and wholeness. But your parents' faces are not joyful like yours. Their brows are furrowed in concern. They don't look happy. And you tell them now, with maybe a quaver in your voice, that you've actually decided to become a follower of this rabbi, this Messiah, Jesus. And the anger that comes from your parents and siblings is shocking. The head of your family, your father, who holds ultimate power in this family system, in this cultural family system, is furious with you. How dare you turn your back on God and the Torah and your religious leaders in this communal society, you've not just turned your back on yourself, but on your whole family and community. You've dishonored your parents publicly and created great shame for those close to you. This wasn't just your decision. You've, in fact, made a decision for your whole clan. And an ultimatum is laid at your feet. You either reject this Jesus of Nazareth or forever be disowned from your family. You will not have a home to live in. 
There's no bed to sleep in. You will no longer have siblings. You will no longer have parents. You lose everything. So when we think about it in those terms, the verse that Jesus just talked about is not that harsh or crazy, really, when you think about it. Jesus is talking about this incredible fork in the road that is to follow him. The idea that we die to self and follow him, that we pick up our own proverbial cross every day and follow him. And Jesus is giving us a heads up, a warning that the message he brings and who he is is radical. It always has been radical. It is transcendent. It has transcended culture for thousands of years. It's not tame. And as C.S. Lewis said when he was referring to Aslan, that Jesus is definitely not safe by any means. So our word for today is not actually really an easy one. And much of the gospel message actually is not an easy message. Jesus makes a lot of warning in scriptures, and we would really do well to heed them seriously, and myself included. It may feel a bit hellfire and brimstone, but it is a hard truth that we often overlook because the safer, kinder aspects of Jesus are just so much easier to swallow. They're so much, they're just, just like lovely to hear, and they're true, and they're wonderful, and we should be listening to those. But we do Christ a dishonor if we just paint half the picture of his message. Uh, years ago, I dated a girl, and her family were believers, and um, a lot of my friends aren't Christians. I mean, outside of church aren't. And I remember hanging out um, with some friends um, uh, who weren't Christians at my girlfriend's house at the time, and I just remember her dad turning to one of my, one of my friends who wasn't a Christian and saying like, oh yeah, you know, following Jesus is just the easiest thing ever. You just accept him, and your life is like so much better. And I was like, at a certain level, I agree with that. But then I also look back, I'm like, are you crazy? Is this the same Jesus that we're talking about, right? And we, we should hold well and intention this reality that we do, we have a good shepherd who loves us and forgives us and seeks to know us intimately. But we also need to hold that with the reality that it, that it takes sacrifice to follow him and we will experience hardship for Christ in some way, shape, or another. Whether it's maybe you're not getting persecuted in the street, but maybe there's something in your life that you know is not what God wants for you. And you have to sacrifice that. That could be a hardship. So what do we do? Do we become stoic and do we harden our hearts or do we despair in following Christ? And I would say not at all. In fact, joy and hope are huge in our lives and should be huge in our lives, especially when we're fostering just a, you know, a relationship with Jesus. The New Testament, as we read in Hebrews, is full of all kinds of encouragements amidst hardship and struggles, and specifically those that come attached with faith. And in fact, I'm guessing at some level that the hardships the early church experienced are probably nothing like we are experiencing here in the Bay. When Christians throw around the persecution, the word persecution in our context, I get a little uneasy with that, to be completely honest, because I'm like, someone might be rude to me, but at the end of the day, you know, I get to go home safe and sound. I don't end up in prison. I actually know people, I know Christians who are from other countries and other contexts who have been beaten and jailed for their faith, but they are some of the most joyful and, and hap, truly some of the most joyful and happy people that I have ever met. And honestly, it kind of boggles my mind sometimes. I'm like, how, how do you do that? Um, 
And I think by their account, it really is the power of the Holy Spirit in them. It is the joy that they have in, in salvation in Christ. So as Christians, we are to acknowledge this idea that there's great sacrifice in following Christ, but that it actually does open up a better way, a better life, and, and a joy for us in the hope of the gospel, that we are saved, we're redeemed, and we're reconciled to our God. That is a, a profound idea that I think we often overlook or, or just forget about in the hustle and bustle of our daily lives. Because no longer are we banking on the things of this world to fulfill us. We are hoping in and living in and experiencing the eternal thing which makes us whole that no one can take from us. But it is often in these themes that I think that the modern church has kind of forgotten a little bit about this idea of lament in the scriptures, which is the crying out to God for help whilst also praising and trusting him. And that's kind of a weird thing. I don't know about you, but growing up, my experience was very much the experience of um, it's all about joy and happiness all the time. And if you don't experience that, something must be wrong with you and your faith, which I want to say is not true at all. In fact, lament is a big thing for me in my journey that showed me that, yeah, there are hard things and we can come to God with those things. It's all over scripture. It's from the Psalms to, you guessed it, a whole book called Lamentations. You should go read it sometime. It's very depressing. <laughs> so I admit that I do leave you with kind of a heavy idea this, this Sunday, that this idea that following Christ comes with a lot of sacrifice. But beautifully, there is a whole whole new world and hope that comes in place of that sacrifice. We are exchanging one thing for a better thing. In fact, in light of the hardship we know we may endure, we are in a short while about to take communion together. And as a church body, we will encounter the presence of Christ through the wine and the bread and be assured in the sacramental mystery that we have life with him and with one another, that we are not alone and desperate, but well-loved and cared for in ways that we may not be able to see or imagine right now in this moment or maybe even in a few weeks. We are also called into this beautiful, holy mission to love and care for and stand alongside the least of these. We are called to feed the sick and the lost, the orphan and the widow, and all those who most likely have also lost much and been through hardship. And I think that there's something beautiful about being among the least of these, being humble and meek, but also being welcomed to the dinner table of the creator of existence. That is profound. So may we not forget these heavy words, but may we also hold them in beauty of our Savior's love for us, this costly grace which we have been given. May we never take it for granted. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the Sermon Podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.